Welcome to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast, where we discuss OSHA, EPA, safety policy, safety training, employee engagement, and everything in between. Safety is so much more than a technical skill. It's a motivational need. It's a means of engaging your team. Safety is a meaningful business practice that makes a direct impact on everyone in the organization. Hi, I'm your host for the podcast, Dr. Mark French, also known as The Safety Dude. As a certified safety professional and nationally registered EMT, I am excited to share my knowledge and passion from experience in environmental health, safety, security, and human resources. I've worked in the automotive, foods, chemical, nuclear, and e-commerce fields. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode as we talk through the current issues in environmental health and safety and how they can affect the culture of your organization. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Again, happy you could join me this week as we talk through those items, those behaviors, those ideas, those cultures that are behind how we do safety, how we are able to create an environment of health and safety for our teams. So this week, uh, again, we're going to start off by looking at uh, COVID-19 and what it is doing uh, in the world of health and safety. We're going to come out at the end of this, a very changed industry. On top of everything else we were doing, um, this is something that's taken the forefront. It's very important, very big topic, and continues to develop, continues to evolve. And um, it all starts with how we interact with it at the site level, at our organizational level, with our employees. What are we doing? Are we making sure they have the right tools? Are we making sure that they have the right resources? Are, Are we encouraging them? to follow the practices that are being set forth by what science is out there. And again, there's going to be a lot of interesting issues that come from it. And it's, it's bizarre to read some of the articles about workers' compensation insurance because about half of them are claiming that, man, we're going to a four-year low, that we've had this great run, and certain states are getting going to get some big discounts in their workers' compensation insurance or have been seeing it over the years looking backwards. And then you have those that are saying, hey, now watch out, because all that all that, that you gained, you're going to lose potentially. And a lot is dependent on how compensable COVID-19 becomes, how widespread is protection only going to be offered to frontline workers like medical teams and such, or will it be offered unilaterally depending on, and how do you determine work-relatedness? Because that's been contested even by OSHA from a record-keeping standpoint. Of course, record-keeping and compensability, two very different things. (laughs) Always got to keep them separate. But as much as they're separated, they also intertwine at certain points. So it's kind of like uh, two two sine waves. Occasionally, they, they come into like a little bitty contact, and you have to kind of look at it and say, all right, how do these two things work together? 
But it's fascinating, and it's state by state. Certain states are are going, hey, we're going to have some unprecedented savings. Other states are saying, you better go ahead and bank that because it's going to go back up. It's going to be wild, and it's going to be interesting. And if you're one of those safety professionals that has multi-sites, and not only multi-state, but what if you're multinational? This is a this is a big deal, and it's really going to be hard to predict, uh, especially state by state, nation by nation. But just looking at states, looking at the difference in all the states here in the United States, and looking at what they're doing for compensability, that's going to be a huge issue from the standpoint of how far will this go? How much is that going to cost us in the long term? How much are we going to have to invest in it? Rightfully so or not rightfully so, wherever you stand there, we have to be prepared for it because there is such a huge argument and and looking at when is it compensable, when is it not, and what will be compensable and who deserves it and how much and all of that. There is so much that we have not worked out from that standpoint. And are we going to lose some of that savings? I I would say, yeah. I don't think that we, we've had a good run here. Um, year over year, we've, we've seen some nice reductions state by state, especially with certain state plans. Now, I think we're going to, we're going to have to bank some of that for what we've seen with COVID because we're going to have a lot of fallout and it's still going. It's not like we're done with COVID yet. Who knows when that could change? We're going to have to be prepared for it and we're going to have to continue to be diligent. We're going to still be proactive. We've still got a lot of work ahead of us as safety professionals to work through this. And regardless of how you're dealing with it in your workplace, hopefully you are taking a proactive measure. Hopefully you've convinced your team that you need to be looking at this and trying to understand contacts and where it's spreading, how it's spreading. Uh, you need to be doing something. Due diligence is going to be key here. And we've seen some already some OSHA FAQs change on how we report it, but this is going to be evolving because it's not even done. It's not like we're even looking in the rearview mirror. We're still living it. We're still working through it. We're still trying to find best practices. And that kind of leads into that there's already some some going into the Secretary of Labor, some, some lawsuits being filed. This begins with some labor unions over in California, uh, teachers union, uh, nurses union, and some other healthcare professional unions are already uh, lining up to figure out how this is going to happen, getting their day in court, getting that filed. So again, we're living it. We're still trying to understand how it's going and we're trying to get ahead of it. And they're doing what they should be doing, and that's protect their members the best way they can. If that means getting in front of the courts or having it filed, that's something that's necessary for them. But we're seeing it. We're living it. It's um, very difficult to understand where we're going to be at the end of this and how much protection we're going to have when this finishes. So it's um, it's something that we're going to have to live through. And... Then we look at other state plans where a news agency was investigating in in Utah, and here's a state that's being accused of not doing their investigations fast enough, not getting involved, not looking at the conditions of the workplaces that people are working in. And, and what's interesting is some of the claims that are in this report 
that came out of Salt Lake City, uh, one of the news agencies there, saying that some of the employers in the state, things like lack of PPE, but even worse, lack of soap, like running out of soap in bathrooms, not replacing it. Some of those fundamental issues that we've had to tackle. And there were times where it was really difficult to find um, to find supplies for COVID-19. I think that's easing up now. But in the beginning, there were certain times where it's like, okay, do we have to send our team home because we're out? We can't sanitize. We can't, can't clean. Um, in this case, running out of soap. These are things that we had to worry about early on, and we still have to, because after this is over, how are we prepared for the next time? Are we better off? Did we learn from it? That's so important. What are we learning from this process? And so the idea, like, for instance, I know that a lot of schools and a lot of locations were reaching out to distilleries because they switched over from making spirits to making hand sanitizer. There was one locally in particular that, um, in my area especially, that was making huge batches of hand sanitizer and either handing it out to certain organizations or you could buy it. That was fantastic. What a community service that was provided um, and really helped because there was such a huge, huge issue with getting those supplies. And to know that our hospitals could rely on this organization to help supply them or their healthcare agencies to supply, that was helpful. But not everyone had that reliance. Not everybody had that community that they could rely on to help. And that's why a community is such a big part of safety. And I've heard this before because it was told to me, and I'll still remember the day that I sat in that office and I heard it, that there's nothing trade secret about safety. If we can help each other, we need to. I love to see when, like when there's a conglomerate of chemical companies uh, in an area and they create a mutual aid program where they'll come to each other's aid. When there's different companies that will reach out and say, hey, when you're in trouble safety-wise, we can do this for you. What can you do for us? How do we help each other? How do we create that community and safety And that's so important because, again, there's nothing trade secret or shouldn't be. Sometimes there are. I'm not going to say never. Someone will disprove me that there's that 0.01% time. But (laughs) I guess it's the spirit of what I'm saying here. There shouldn't be a time where safety is trademarked. There shouldn't be a time that there's a trade secret about safety. If we can help each other in this community, we should. Because it's all about helping our people. It's not about... It's not about just being the greatest safety person ever because I'm far from that. It's not about me. It's about us. We do this because we want to protect people. We want to protect our team. And how do we do that without help? We can't do it alone. There's just too much out there. So it's really great to see that community come together. It's really great when we're able to share in those community programs to help with safety, to help educate, to help do And that's really where I think we're going to learn from COVID is that are there ways that we can help each other when these things happen? Are there ways that we can share resources and be prepared in a better way as a conglomerate, whether it be geographical or organizational? How are we able to share and help? More podcast in just a moment. 
TSD Amalgamated, your partner in safety consulting. Find them on the web at tsdamalgamated.com. With over 15 years of experience in various industries, setting up ISO, TS, and RC systems, the professional team at TSD Amalgamated is ready to help you take your safety program to that next level. TSD Amalgamated is skilled in technical and behavioral auditing, from training employees on OSHA compliance standards to helping your leadership team see how safety can help drive real organizational change. TSD Amalgamated is there to be your partner. Their process is not a fill-in-the-blank policy or training process. They want to know your team, your needs, and create processes that create total organizational ownership. TSD Amalgamated, where do you want your safety programs to take you? www.tsdamalgamated.com Welcome back to the second half of the podcast this week. An interesting article came out in the Safety and Health magazine, um, or on the online edition of it, and it was about the Department of Labor giving guidance through a memo that instructs the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to halt news releases about employer penalties. So that's interesting, because usually, uh, and a few years back, I mean, primarily uh, under Dr. David Michaels, when he was there, they really wanted to focus on, like, OSHA's out there. And if you're not doing what you should do, you can receive some pretty large fines. You can be in some significant trouble, not only just from the sheer fact of the fines, but it created that public image. It could hurt a brand by having that brand or that name of that company out there and talking and saying that, look, there's these issues, there's these items, and we find them a huge amount of money because there were significant safety issues that were there. So, and they actually claimed that this showed decrease in violations. Now, as far as the statistics that were there a real correlation between and if it was that significant, not sure. Haven't seen the math there. I'm sure it did have some effect. Anytime that you put something in front of somebody, it can be managed. I mean, it's the old, the old adage of if it can be measured, it can be managed. And if there's a lot of information being published in, in a certain area or keying certain names with certain huge amount of fines for trenching, for instance, or lockout tagout, it creates an emphasis on those items and how it works. Now, when we're looking at this, though, what's interesting about these fines, these are just proposed fines. As anyone who has dealt with OSHA before, if you've had any significant, uh, if you follow it, if you've been involved in it, uh, there are times and a lot of times that you go to an informal or you take it to a court or you take it to a hearing and sometimes the fines are reduced. Sometimes those penalties are thrown out. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's not. So I've been on both sides where we've we've had some significant wins. We've proven our point. Um, and I've been on the other side where just couldn't prove anything and or trying to. And it was thrown out for whatever reason, but seen it both ways. So the argument here is that it creates an undue, I guess, that guilty before uh, proven guilty aspect that it's saying that, hey, we issued these fines. Even though the press releases always have that, well, it's still pursuant to any type of formal hearing or they have that language in there that says, hey, there's still a way that this can be appealed. This isn't the final thing. 
but it still creates that first part image. I mean, most people are headline readers. That's, I mean, that's where back in the day when I was still having to write news copy for radio and uh, for media, it's been a long time ago since I've had to do that thinking back, but they always wanted you to do it kind of inverted. You always gave a little bit of a backstory, real short backstory, and then you'd hit the main point of the article. So if you were writing it or if you were reporting it, you first give a little introduction and then you would say, here's what I'm going to talk about. And then you give all the details afterward because they knew most people would only read the first either headline or the first few sentences and then be like, okay, I'm good. And they'd move on. Or if they would maybe lose interest in the story, if they were listening to it on the radio. So if they were interested in the story you were doing, they would keep listening to the details that you were going to give. If they weren't interested, and I know that's not you guys. I mean, you guys are probably listening to this entire podcast start to finish. You wouldn't just skip a header like that. <laughs> but on radio, they would listen to the first article or the first news story. And if that news story didn't interest them, they would kind of zone out until the next story came on. And then they would, okay, am I interested in that topic? And then you would listen. It's kind of the human psychology of how we absorb information. If we're interested, we keep gaining interest. So the same thing with these press releases, that most people or companies or organizations would read the first few lines, see that a company was fined a huge amount of money or something significantly wrong with their safety processes, and just assume that that's truth, that this company has done these things wrong. Now, there's always an in-between. Is it always as bad as it's published? Sometimes. Is it sometimes improved? Yeah. And being on both sides is very difficult as a safety professional when we rely on these items, because I rely on these sometimes as much as anyone else, unfortunately. In the progressive cycle of how we psychologically do safety, I first want to lean on the fact that it's the right thing to do, that we have a risk, we have a hazard that we need to fix. Our people are at risk. We should do something about it. And if that doesn't work, you go to the next phase. Well, there's laws in place that say we need to do this. And then you have to sometimes even go further to go, not only is it a law, there's a chance you could get caught. And if you get caught, there is a significant effect that could come of this. Look at these huge fines. I just look right here in the news. This huge amount of fine for this issue. I know when there's been significant issues, significant fines. And I think back to when I was in the food industry, and if you think back uh, some time ago, there was the tuna factory uh, that had the fatality from lack of lockout tagout, and they had someone enter a canning uh, operation, and it was turned on. Um, unacceptable. Terrible, terrible fatality. It sent shockwaves, not only through the food industry, but through a lot of industries that needed to be really focused on lockout tagout. And certainly it gained something from that. You were able to learn from it. And from the standpoint of what I look at in these memos, in these published releases from OSHA, the fines are okay. I don't know that fines are really the driving network anymore, even though there has been the, the increases that they have perpetually increased finally, the fines to be up to date, but more of the fact that I want to understand what happened because I don't think most companies worry about the money being paid. They're more worried about the, the brand effect. Well, how does it affect the brand? 
How does it affect our company if we're seen as having this horribly unsafe place to work? And so the, what I would take from these releases is I would always look at what were they fined for? What was the reason behind it? It wasn't the fine that got my attention. It was the reason behind it. Was it lockout tagout? Was it trenching? Was it confined space entry? What was it that led to this company having this kind of large OSHA uh, involvement into the work that they're doing? And again, in the what's going on here recently, and we look at the fines and think, oh, I don't know, is the fines really deterring anyone as much as the idea of the brand image? So if my company, for instance, if I owned a large, huge company and suddenly I'm in the news for jeopardizing my workers, that's not a good thing. We don't want to be known for that. And so these publications in some ways try to show that you're you can be that person if you're not following the law. But again, you look at the other side of it, and sometimes there are times when a name has to be made. That, and sometimes people are just not following what they should in maybe an industry like meatpacking, because we're seeing a lot of that with COVID. Was the meat industry and food industry protecting their workers during COVID and still ongoing through COVID? And so... OSHA is going out and potentially looking for that big name that has not been doing some things right, potentially, and looking at that because they've got to make a name for it to make it real, that psychological of that it can't happen to me. But then you can pull up these news stories and find out, well, maybe it can happen to me. If it can happen to that company, it could happen to my company. And I don't want to be that company in the press release. And so there's always this... I always have this moral dilemma when I see these items because I want to use them. I want to educate on them because it's important that we see it. It's important that as safety professionals, we learn. And again, this goes back to the first half where I talked about the idea that we learn from each other. We're a community of safety professionals. But sometimes to make our point get across, we need that final action. We need that OSHA in the background. And I know a lot of times, um, and sometimes even in the consulting world, uh, when they come in to talk to you, that you always use that. Well, there were huge fines for that. I'm, I can help you fix that. And we have to look at how we evaluate it and how we accept that risk and how we fix it. That's really what it's about. And that's where I like these press releases from the citations happened. Now, whether or not they ultimately get resolved, that's yes or no. They may get resolved. They may be proven that it wasn't true, but... I want to see what OSHA is citing. I want to know what are they focused on. That way I can be prepared, whether it be through good documentation or a good process or good engineering. I want to know what they're looking at. I want to see through their eyes so I can better prepare my companies, my team for whatever is coming. And that's the way we do this is through these ideas. Now, as far as leaving off the, the fine amount and not putting the penalties on there as far as quantity of, of dollars. Okay, one way or the other, I'm okay with that. I'm not a huge fan of it, but, you know, I understand potentially why we were doing this. But I want to see these still published. If someone is being cited for significant hazards, and I want to know why, I want to know what those hazards are, and I want to be prepared for those items. 
So that's something that I know all of us as safety professionals are wanting to understand is how do we better prepare when OSHA comes to the door? How are we able to meet what they need from us? Because we know what we're doing. We're out there and we're trying to protect our team. But we also want to make sure that we do it in a way that when it comes to it, we can show the OSHA officials that we are doing the best we can. Well, thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. And until next time we chat, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Join the conversation on the internet at www.thesafetydude.org or on Twitter at thesafetydude. As always, all opinions are my own and not affiliated with any business entity. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not a substitute for proper policy, appropriate training, or legal advice. I always encourage you to learn more about safety regulations and examine the facts with your unique perspective. This has been the Leading and Learning Through Safety Podcast. <music>